Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. A judge says District Attorney Fani Willis could be disqualified from Georgia's election case and may be asked to testify over accusations of misconduct. And former President Trump asks the Supreme Court to step in on the matter of presidential immunity. Mass flight cancellations and power outages. A winter storm is bringing heavy snow and other extreme weather conditions to the Northeast. The Senate passes an aid package for Ukraine and Israel, but one Republican senator is sounding the alarm on what he calls an impeachment time bomb in the bill, aimed at a possible Trump presidency. For a second time in a week, House Republicans vote to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Will the outcome be different this time? Could Russia be preparing for a direct conflict with NATO? Why some Western leaders are making that assessment and how they want to stop Moscow from attacking. As Valentine's Day approaches, strikes are looming. Over 100,000 rideshare app drivers will be walking off the job tomorrow. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, New York City and other parts of the Northeast are bracing for a surge of snow today. A strong, fast-moving nor'easter is knocking out power and disrupting travel in the region. More than six inches of snow was reported across the Northeast earlier today. New York City could see its biggest snowfall in more than two years. Roughly 46 million people are under winter alerts. New York City public schools canceled in-person classes and switched to remote learning. Authorities are urging residents to work from home and avoid non-essential travel. According to PowerOutage.us, more than 40,000 properties in the Northeast were without power this morning. More power outages are possible in the region. According to FlightAware, over 1,000 flights are canceled nationwide today. Most are in the New York and Boston area. And Trump asked the Supreme Court to pause a lower court's ruling that rejected his bid for a presidential immunity. Trump also wants a full bench of judges to reconsider the D.C. appeals court decision instead of the three-judge panel that made the ruling. And in Trump's Georgia election case, the district attorney could face disqualification. A judge said the D.A. might have to testify over allegations of misconduct. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Trump's legal battles. Former President Trump asked the Supreme Court Monday to temporarily block a unanimous decision from the D.C. Circuit denying his claims to presidential immunity in his federal January 6th case. The case would be sent back to trial court to proceed if Trump's request is rejected. If granted, the case would be further delayed. It generally takes the votes of five justices to grant a stay. Prosecutors have argued Trump was acting as a candidate, not a president, for his alleged role on January 6th. Trump wants the case dismissed based on presidential immunity. In Georgia, the judge and district attorney Fonnie Willis's election case against Trump said she could be disqualified. I think it's clear that disqualification can occur if evidence is produced demonstrating an actual conflict or the appearance of one. Willis and special counsel Nathan Wade tried to have their subpoenas quashed and the hearing canceled. The judge rejected their arguments. He says Thursday's hearing will focus on if a relationship existed, if it was romantic in nature, when it formed, and whether it continues. The judge says it remains to be proven that Willis financially benefited from the case, but that Thursday's hearing must occur to establish the record on allegations of misconduct. 
and that Willis may be required to testify due to a good faith basis for relevance from the defense. The relevant information that Mr. Bradley has to this inquiry is that this relationship started prior to Mr. Wade being appointed as a special prosecutor in this case. Trump and his co-defendants are also seeking to get the entire case dismissed. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. The Senate early Tuesday passed an over $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan, but some Republican senators are sounding the alarm. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the bill and their concerns. Senate Leader Chuck Schumer says it's perhaps decades since the Senate passed a bill that so greatly impacts national security and the security of Western democracy. Today we witnessed one of the most historic and consequential bills to have ever passed the Senate. The vote came after a small group of Republicans opposed to the $60 billion for Ukraine held the Senate floor through the night. Senator Josh Hawley reacted. My goodness, we have enough money to make hundreds of millions of dollars of our taxpayer funds available to the private sector in Ukraine. Hawley says such money will literally fund their businesses and banks and the pensions of Ukrainian government officials. The lawmaker says the U.S. Senate has left middle America out in the cold. Meanwhile, these same people turn to the citizens of Missouri and say, you're not worth a dime. They say you can't have a penny. Senator J.D. Vance says he sent a memo to all GOP colleagues saying there's an impeachment time bomb for a potential Donald Trump presidency buried in the bill's text. The Ohio senator mentions Trump's 2019 impeachment report that criticizes Trump for freezing military assistance to Ukraine against national security interests. Here's Vance on Real America's Voice. Senator Rand Paul said he stands behind Vance's memo on Monday. He told Fox Digital, quote, they're locking in foreign aid that will even tie the hands of the next president. More than a dozen Republicans voted with almost all Democrats to pass the package 70 to 29. Those in support argued that abandoning Ukraine could embolden Russian President Vladimir Putin and threaten national security across the globe. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky welcomed the Senate's passing of the foreign aid package. Zelensky said he's grateful for, in his words, every U.S. senator who has supported continued assistance to Ukraine as we fight for freedom, democracy, and the values we all hold dear. Ukraine's foreign secretary also hailed the Senate vote, saying, this signal of unwavering bipartisan support is greatly needed and appreciated. And to joining us now to speak about all of this is Jeff Carlson, investigative journalist and co-host of Truth Over News on Epic TV. Jeff, welcome. Great to have you back. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yes, great to have you on. And to begin with, how do you interpret Senator Vance's warning that this aid package could be used to impeach Trump? Well, Senator Vance is completely right on this. Um, and it is you know, sort of a twofold process that happened, but they've extended the funding deep into the end of 2025, which is when Trump's presidency could, you know, conceivably he could be a year into his administration. And it makes it very difficult for him to remove that funding. As a matter of fact, Vance is right. It does create a situation where he could be impeached if he tried to do so. 
So um, everything that Vance is saying is, is, is correct. And if you think back to the impeachment in December 2019, that was over funding to Ukraine. And these funds are larger. The situation is more serious. Um, I'm sure that Democrats would absolutely try to do the same thing if they, you know, if, if Trump tried to delete the funding. And you recently said on on X that um, GOP leadership, Biden White House, Democrat leadership and the intelligence community's um, true goal in relation to this bill is really Ukraine. What makes you say that? Well, for a number of reasons. First of all, I think the way to look at this is that we're effectively pitting kind of the old guard um, GOP uh, leadership against the kind of the newer guard of the, the GOP party. Um, it's an unusual situation where GOP leadership worked together with DNC leadership as well as the White House. And we now can tell probably the intelligence community to craft this bill. Yet it's something that many GOP senators, um, especially the younger ones, are very much against. And, you know, what it's really doing, and this started off as a border bill, I think, as everybody knows, but that border bill was deeply flawed and really didn't do anything to close the border. It provided a large amount of money for UN NGOs that are continuing to basically serve as the vehicle to funnel people into our country. And when that failed, they just turned around and just shoved through a supplemental funding bill for $95 billion, of which 61 of it, 61 billion is for Ukraine. And that's what they really care about. And so how, how do you pose the, the idea that, as you said, this, the bill, the border bill, was actually designed to deceive um, GOP lawmakers about the border? Well, it was, it, was de it was designed to deceive both GOP lawmakers, but also the constituency, the base, because the bill was originally put forth um, as a border bill, when what it really was was a, a terrible border bill that was basically a vehicle to attach the 60 billion in funding to Ukraine. And they didn't, uh, GOP leadership and DNC leadership for that matter, both of them, they worked together. They didn't show it to um, any of the senators beforehand that weren't part of the creation of this bill. So it came out last minute and they wanted a very, very quick vote on it. They didn't want the public to look at it. There was a slight delay. People got a, a glimpse into what was in the so-called, I called it fake border bill, the original iteration, and they revolted against it. And we actually thought this thing was kind of dead, but instead they regrouped and DNC and GOP leadership, I can't accentuate this enough, they worked together, um, created this new bill and managed to shove it through despite attempts at filibusters. It now moves on to the House. And we're not talking about small amounts here. You know, there's this, the total bill is $95 billion. That amounts to about $1,000 per family. Um, so it's, it's large amounts of money that we're talking about. And it's, you know, it's going uh, really pretty much against the will of the people. I, don't, I think the only ones that are happy about this are, you know, kind of the senior congressional leadership. And at the same time, most Americans are concerned about the southern border and, and managing yes. it appropriately. And you've said that um, every single member of the GOP who provided support to any of the bill's iterations should be held accountable. What would that look like to you? Well, you know, I mean, I'd love to see them get primaried. Now, that's not going to happen. Many of these are very, very senior people. It's going to take a while. You know, I do think we're seeing kind of a slow overturn of Congress. But what I guess what I want is that attention is drawn to this unique situation where we had this division between the old guard and the new guard. And, you know, it's overwhelming that people are concerned about the border. So this was a complete disregard for their base. 
And, you know, the entire purpose of this was to have this pretense that we're going to address the border, when in reality, they had no intention of doing so. And it was simply a means to push through more funding for Ukraine. And again, immense funding, not small dollars, at a time when we're in deep fiscal trouble with $34 trillion in debt. Yeah. Thank you so much. Great to hear your thoughts on this. Jeff Carlson, investigative journalist and co-host of Truth Over News on Epic TV. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And former President Trump is looking to shake up the Republican National Committee. He's backing North Carolina Republican Party Chairman Michael Watley to succeed Ronna McDaniel as RNC chair. And he endorsed his own daughter-in-law, Laura Trump, as co-chair. Ronna McDaniel offered to step down after the South Carolina primary after she met with Trump at his Mar-a-Lago residence earlier in the month. Trump is also tapping his senior presidential campaign advisor to manage the RNC's day-to-day -day operations. Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley criticized Trump's endorsements, saying he's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. She says under Trump and the current RNC leadership, Republicans lost elections in 2018, 2020, and 2022. Up next, one Republican lawmaker says medical resources allocated for illegal immigrants could be hurting America's veterans. Senator Tommy Tuberville says the border influx is creating longer wait times at veteran facilities. A shooting at a New York City subway station leaves one dead and five injured. The suspect still at large. What we know so far. Security cameras capture the moment a series of earthquakes hit a California home near the Mexico border. Over two dozen earthquakes have been reported in the area. We'll have the details soon when we return. House Republicans will have another chance to vote on Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas's impeachment today after their motion was defeated last week. Republicans vowed to try again once House Majority Leader Steve Scalise returned to work. Scalise was absent from the first vote because he was receiving cancer treatment. GOP lawmakers want to remove Mayorkas for his handling of the border, saying he failed to enforce immigration law. Democrats have denounced the impeachment, calling it political posturing. And Senator Tommy Tuberville complaining that medical resources allocated for illegal immigrants could be hurting American veterans. The Republican lawmaker told Fox News that the influx at the border is creating potentially longer wait times at Veterans Affairs facilities. The VA doesn't pay for illegal immigrants' health care, but it is involved in the handling of the bills, sending reimbursements to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and performing other bureaucratic tasks. This partnership was in place before the Biden administration. But the agency is reportedly having trouble handling all the extra paperwork. That's due to the sheer number of people entering the country. Fox News reports that some veterans now receive bills they're not supposed to receive, while community care providers have to wait longer for their reimbursements. To stop this, Senator Tuberville, Tuberville recently introduced a bill called the No VA Resources for Illegal Aliens Act. And in other border news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is poised to send more resources to help Texas tackle illegal crossings. Georgia's Republican-led legislature recently passed resolutions condemning President Biden's border policy. State lawmakers say they back any effort to help, the pro help protect the southern border. Kemp could choose to send more National Guard troops to the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas. 
The governor deployed troops there in 2019, and almost 30 Guard members currently remain stationed in Texas. Kemp is expected to give more details this afternoon during a scheduled announcement. Georgia is at least the third Republican-led state where lawmakers have introduced resolutions to support Texas Governor Greg Abbott after Oklahoma and Tennessee. In New York City, responding to recent violence by illegal immigrants, Mayor Eric Adams' administration is placing new rules on migrant shelters. Entity's Chris Beers asked people in the Big Apple what they think about this latest move. I'm here in New York City, which just implemented a curfew on select migrant shelters here. The curfew runs from about 11 p.m. to 6 a.m., and it comes after violence linked to some of the people from these shelters. Let's hear what New York City residents have to say about this. I think it's totally appropriate. I think uh, when you walk by some of the migrant hotels, they're out on the street. It's difficult to even navigate the sidewalk. And if you're elderly or children, it's, it's a little, it feels a little bit threatening. So I think having everyone in by 11 o'clock is, is appropriate. You know, it's a very large population, and I guess there's some management that has to happen. I live near Union Square, and early in the morning there are people with bags that are just sort of looking for places to go live and things to do because they're not allowed to work. So I guess the city feels like it needs to be managed, but um, for the most part, the population seems to be managing itself pretty well. So. I agree that there should be a, some control. I feel like a curfew in general for a shelter that's placed for adults is unnecessary. I feel like there shouldn't be like an exact rule or regulation on when somebody leaves or not for the place that they're resided in. I think that it's a good thing because everybody would be off the street. That So that part of it is good. It's always a catch-22. You know what I mean? That part is good, but then when what about when they're off the street? Then what? You know, when they have to go in those buildings and in those shelters, you never really truly know who's in the building. And it's not safe for anybody. Uh, I believe it's a good thing because I, I walk through here late night and I see all the guys standing outside. So it is a, a little, makes me feel a little uneasy to see all those people just standing around, hanging out, whatever they're doing in, in the streets all times of the night. New York City has long implemented curfews on traditional shelters. This curfew will impact about 3,600 of the 66,000 migrants currently staying in the city's migrant shelter system. This is Chris Beers reporting from New York City for NTD News. One person was killed and five others seriously injured in a New York City subway shooting yesterday. Police say the shooter is still at large. An argument that exploded into a bout of deadly violence. That's how the New York City Police Department described the shooting at a subway station Monday afternoon that left one person dead and five wounded. We don't believe this was a random shooting. We do not believe that this was an individual indiscriminately firing into a train or in a train station. The police reported multiple 911 calls to respond to Mount Eden Station in the Bronx around 4.30 p.m. When they arrived, they found six people who were shot. One of the victims, a 34-year-old man, was later pronounced dead. The five other victims, ranging from 14 to 71 years old, are all in stable condition at various hospitals. No arrests have been made so far. Police say the incident started with a dispute between two groups of teenagers. As the train pulled into the Mount Eden uh, station, the doors opened up, uh, and at least one of the individuals in that group, or in two groups, uh, took out a gun and fired shots. Police say the shooter is still at large, but that there's no ongoing threat. 
The NYPD is now seeking the public's help in finding two males connected to the shooting. The police have not named the men as suspects. Security cameras on Monday captured the moment a series of earthquakes struck a California home near the Mexico border. Footage shared by a resident in El Centro shows multiple locations on the property shaking. Tremors caused kitchen cabinet doors to open and items to fall off a counter. Since midnight, over two dozen earthquakes have been reported in the area. The U.S. Geological Survey says the largest quake registered a magnitude of 4.8. No injuries were reported within El Centro. The city of El Centro confirmed damage to an apartment complex where a waterline break occurred. Across the border in Mexicali, classes were suspended as a precaution. The State Council of Civil Protection is assessing the schools. Check your refrigerators. Some salad kits are being recalled because they could be contaminated with wisteria. Some Dole branded and private label salad kits were processed on the same line as a cheese that was recently recalled for possible traces of listeria. The recalled products include Dole, President's Choice, and Marketside brand salad kits. They were distributed in 25 states and five Canadian provinces. Anyone with the products are urged to discard them immediately. Dole says so far there have been no reported illnesses connected to the products. A major recall involving a popular refrigerator brand, Electrolux is recalling more than 380,000 of its Frigidaire side-by-side refrigerators with slim ice buckets. The ice bucket's components can break, causing plastic pieces to enter the buckets, which can pose a potential choking or laceration hazard. That's according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, or CPSC. Electrolux says they've had at least 343 such incidents reported. Most of the recalled fridges were sold in the U.S., with nearly 6,000 sold in Canada. More information is available at the CPSC's website. Doctors, nurses, and parents are scrambling now that one of the most commonly prescribed childhood asthma medications is no longer being manufactured in the U.S. Pharmaceutical company GSK took Flovent off the shelves January 1st and replaced it with an identical generic version. Ahead of the switch, the company said this would help provide patients with potentially lower costs, but that hasn't necessarily been the case. Some insurance companies don't cover the generic version, while alternatives might not work for certain children, or they can be hard to find. Flovent and its generic version reduce inflammation in the airways of children that are at risk of having a flare-up or asthma attack. Coming up, a t-shirt on the topic of gender lands a Massachusetts 7th grader in hot water. NTD spoke with his attorney, who says his free speech rights were violated. As Valentine's Day approaches, strikes are looming. Over 100,000 rideshare app drivers will be walking off the job tomorrow. We'll have that and more just after this break. A Massachusetts seventh grader weighs in on a divisive topic concerning human sexuality. He wore a t-shirt to school saying there are only two genders. The school then asked him to remove the shirt. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with Alliance Defending Freedom about the lawsuit that followed. Liam Morrison is a student at Nichols Middle School in Middleborough, Massachusetts. He says he wore the t-shirt stating, there are only two genders to school in March of last year, to peacefully share his belief that a person's gender is directly tied to sex. He says the school silenced his free speech when they pulled him out of class and asked him to remove his t-shirt. 
I never thought that the shirt I wore to school one spring morning would lead to a federal lawsuit, but the reaction from the adults running my school didn't leave me with much choice. Liam says expressing his point of view was only fair, as he says his school was regularly encouraging and expressing their point of view. My school's annual Pride Month celebration is a pretty clear example. My school spends all of June expressing its view on LGBTQ issues, and school officials encourage us to wear our Pride gear to celebrate Pride Month. Liam politely declined to remove the shirt and had to leave school and missed the rest of his classes that day. Liam came back another day with a t-shirt stating, there are censored genders. The honor roll student was sent straight to the principal's office. Liam later filed a lawsuit with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom and the Massachusetts Family Institute, Alliance Defending Freedom attorney Tyson Langhofer. The school was regularly engaging in their own speech on the same topic, and they were encouraging their students to express support for that position. But they weren't allowing people like Liam to express a dissenting view. And that's not allowed. The government cannot censor one viewpoint and allow the other viewpoint to go uncensored. Langhofer discusses how the school could have better handled the matter. If there were complaints, they could say, hey, let's have a discussion about this. What's your view? Do you disagree with Liam? If so, what's your opinion? How do we have civil discourse on this? Right? We live in a pluralistic society. We, we live in a society where people hold differing opinions on really important topics. And what the school should have done is educate the children on what the First Amendment really means. It doesn't mean that you get to censor people who have different opinions just because your, their opinion may be hurtful to you. The attorney brings up the Supreme Court case West Virginia versus Barnett from 1943, which ruled that the First Amendment protects students from being forced to salute the flag or say the Pledge of Allegiance in public school. And that may be hurtful to you if your dad's serving the military trying to defend uh, the world against Nazis, but we can't force people to do things against their wishes. The case is currently in the appeal stage at the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. Langhofer hopes the court will rule in favor of Liam and all students to be able to express their opinions civilly on important topics. NTD reached out to Nichols Middle School for comment. We are still waiting to hear back from them. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A federal judge temporarily blocks an Ohio law seeking to regulate kids' access to social media. The judge says the law is, is likely unconstitutional. An emergency order was issued last month stopping the law from going into effect. The legislation would have required social media platforms to get parental consent before kids under 16 could create accounts. On Monday, the judge said the law is breathtakingly blunt in trying to achieve its goals. He said it's an untargeted approach as parents must only give one-time approval for creating an account. He said under the law, parents and platforms are not required to protect against any of the specific dangers social media might pose. The move is the latest blow to states vowing to crack down on social media in the face of mounting claims it's bad for mental health. It highlights the many legal hurdles facing calls to ban social media for kids. President Biden calling out the food and beverage industry on Super Bowl Sunday. He said they were ripping off consumers. To expand on this, I spoke with Vance Ginn, president of Ginn Economic Consulting. Ginn was also the chief economist at the White House's Office of Management and Budget. 
Vince, good to see you. Now, President Biden is facing a wave of criticism for his shrinkflation comments during the Super Bowl, with people saying it was tone deaf and blaming him for the shrinkflation. Give us your analysis. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you today, and I think that you know, overall, I think he's trying to make a little bit of a joke, so have some fun with, with what's going on in the Super Bowl and everything else. But this isn't a joke for households across the country. You know, some of them have seen the size of the portions that they buy go down, which is in economic terms we call shrinkflation, where, you know, the, the business, um, the retail store won't raise their price. They'll just reduce the amount that's in the actual quantity that's there. Um, that's true. That happens. But the problem is, is that the, the Biden administration, President Biden, Biden will usually like to say that that's the retailers, that's the employer's fault, when really it's the fault of his and Congress's and the feds because they've been spending so much money running up massive deficits, over-regulating things, and then over-printing money. And the result is massive inflation. Now, Vance, how, how widespread and massive is this shrinkflation at the moment? Well, shrinkflation is happening, and it's been happening over the last year plus, where um, you know you get a lot of these products, they'll just have less of an ounces or something along those lines within the product that you had before, and it'll have the same price. So there's not the shelf price increase that you'll see um, that will reduce the amount of consumption of those goods. And it's interesting too, because you know while the president may want us to have larger size products of things, even though the prices continue to go up, um, it also might influence um, weight of Americans and obesity is already a problem and things of that nature when really we need to take a look at how much we're spending by Congress, which is too much. There's just too much deficit spending that's going on. The Federal Reserve has a bloated balance sheet of nearly $8 trillion. And all of that has just been flooding the economy and hurting households and their purchasing power over time. And another way that that's doing that is through shrinkflation. Now, Vance, President Biden seemed to be implying that shrinkflation was happening due to corporate greed. Is there any validity to this claim? And is there any evidence companies take advantage of a bad economy and inflation to shrink their products? Well, I would ask the question, well, why don't they go ahead and um, not have shrinkflation, but, you know, grow and have too much product within those products whenever their prices are going down or something like that on those lines. It's not due to corporate greed. It's not due to what the corporations are doing or employers. This is really a result of the excessive fiscal and monetary policies out of Biden and the Fed uh, and in Congress as well. And so businesses have an incentive for people to buy more of their products, to have have more profitability over time. And so whenever they have a cost that's increasing, whether it's the supply chains or something else across the economy, which is what general price of inflation is, then what you're gonna see is that they're gonna have an impact on their bottom line, which they don't want. So if this was based on greedflation, we would see increasing profitability and everything else, and we're not seeing that across much of the economy. And in fact, we're seeing um, a higher inflation and, and fewer jobs that are being created in the process. And so this is not greedflation, this is a direct result result of bad fiscal and monetary policies out of Washington, D.C. Once this phenomenon occurs during an economic downturn, do the sizes and portions ever go back up again once the economy gets better? Well, they will. I mean, once the economy kind of clears and you see where the prices are going to be, um, a lot of these companies will start to put more back in the products that they have. But we'll see what happens. I mean, sometimes consumers would prefer to have these smaller sizes than they did before at the same price. Um, or we could see, you know, the, a lower price at that same quantity. It really depends on what the marketplace, which is what it should really be about, David. It should be about what's going on in the marketplace between the, the suppliers 
and the consumers in the market. They should determine the quality, the quantity, and the prices. This should not be determined by government bureaucrats and, and politicians up in D.C. Because when that happens, when we have price controls, which is ultimately what I think the Biden administration and, and President Biden really want, we have bad outcomes. We have rationing that takes place. We have lower quality of products. And that is not a good outcome that we want for households and for all families across America. Okay. Well, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that. All right. Joining us now is NTD Business host Don Ma to give us some of the latest updates in the business world. Don, what do you have for us today? So Valentine's Day is tomorrow. So I mean, I wanted to talk to you guys about uh, how chocolate prices are looking because um, roughly 92% of Americans say they plan to share chocolate and candy for Valentine's Day this year, according to the uh, National Confectioners Association. Uh, but it seems like not very good news on this front uh, because uh, the cost of a key ingredient in chocolate, which is cocoa, um, the price has been rising for that. So in the past year, prices has more than doubled. And then in, uh, in the month uh, since January, uh, and it has risen 40%. And just this month, uh, prices has hit a record high going back to the 70s. So the reason for the increase is because of a shortage. And uh, this is because growers in West Africa who produce the bulk of global supply are getting extreme weather. So rains uh, prompted uh, the spread of crop disease and delayed harvesting. Uh, and that's been followed by a seasonal dry spell, which could further crimp production. Now, last year, Valentine's Day chocolate and candy uh, sales exceeded uh, $4 billion, according to the NCA. Uh, and this year, you know, with prices going up, I wouldn't be surprised if that number was a little bit higher. So I'm sure many people are planning to go out for Valentine's Day. So how's that going to affect travel? Okay, so uh, not very good news as well. It seems like uh, in terms of travel either. Uh, thousands of drivers for ride-sharing platforms. This is uh, like Uber, uh, Lyft, and food, food delivery apps uh, like DoorDash. Uh, they're expected to go on strike across the United States tomorrow uh, on Valentine's Day. So the drivers are accusing the platforms of taking disproportionately high amounts of commissions. And just a bit of a number for you. In 2023, Uber drivers' monthly average gross earnings fell 17%. Uh, and I think that's pretty significant. If a, a fifth of your pay uh, disappeared, I mean, how would you feel, right? Uh, and this is potentially the biggest strike uh, we've seen because it's involving thousands and thousands of drivers and it's going to be nationwide. So the drivers are part of the Justice for App Workers Coalition. And this group represents around 130,000 drivers and delivery workers. Now, the group is saying that drivers will not provide rides to and from airports between 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. in 10 U.S. cities. And the coalition says that their demands include living wages, a safe working environment, and an end to unfair deactivation, and as well as quality health benefits. Yeah. Right, big discussion, ongoing one happening right there. Thank you so much, Don. Always great to hear your insights. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Don. Very timely with Valentine's Day coming up. Yeah. Now, in Flores, Manchester, England, people are preparing for the annual Valentine's Day rush, but some fear that Brexit trade barriers will mean higher costs and hindered business. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the latest. Giraffe Flowers expects to sell some 7,000 roses in time for Valentine's Day. 
Today, the shop's bouquet of red roses goes for 40 pounds, or about $50. But by next year, the florist expects that'll cost $60 due to post-Brexit customs charges on European goods. So at the end of the day, the price of the flowers will be higher in the actual shop and the customs will be paying more. Since January 31st, importers of some animal and plant products have been required to present export health certificates to British authorities. Items include meat, eggs, cheese, and certain cut flowers. Giraffe head florist Anna Malika says she expects flower prices to rise by up to 20%. Probably at the beginning, when the process is going to start, the, I don't think the borders are ready for that, so it's going to be even longer, so maybe two days of a delay because of that. And, uh, and it will affect the quality of the flowers because they have to be on actual border for a longer period of time. And more red tape is coming. Physical checks will start on April 30th. Safety and security certificates will be required from October 31st. The British government says it's working to ensure the introduction of checks goes smoothly. Still, Malika is bracing for a slower Valentine's Day next year. I think the customers will just buy less. And we can already see a changes in uh, the amount of flowers they buy with all the cost savings going up. People still come in, they buy flowers, they buy smaller bunches, smaller bouquets. Britain has already postponed full implementation of its post-Brexit border controls five times since leaving the European Union in 2021 due to worries about port disruption and the cost of living crisis. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And flower farmers in Colombia working nonstop in the run-up to Valentine's Day. They hope to meet export demands from the United States for one of the industry's biggest and most important days of the year. The Plazoleta Flower Company northwest of Bogota is humming. As you can see, the company's employees are hard at work picking and packing lilies, carnations and hydrangeas ahead of Valentine's Day. More and more people are turning to flowers as the perfect gift this Valentine's Day. Our industry, as well as our workers, of course, are doing our best to cater in the best way for this holiday. Yes, it's a nice process. In addition to the fact that we see many varieties and many colors, it's really nice working with the flowers because you see them grow and you watch the whole process. And to know that they travel so far is incredible. It's one of the biggest holidays for Colombian farmers. To meet the demand, the companies start flower production six months before the big date. Last year, for the Valentine's Day holiday, Colombia exported nearly 60,000 tons of cut flowers between January and February. Up next, Israel is reportedly planning a military offensive in Rafah. Why Germany calls the situation an incredible dilemma. After months of protests, a win for European farmers today. The European Union is scaling back on an environmental rule, allowing farmers to use more land. And workers in Siberia brave sub-zero temperatures to maintain huge ships. Locals say it's one of the hardest jobs in the world. A closer look in just a moment here on NTD News Today. And now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from Germany and other European countries. First, a look at it. The right to self-defense is in place, and every country, just like Israel, has a right to defend itself against terrorism, but that does not include displacement. 
She admits there's a large presence of Hamas terrorists in Rafah, but she says there's also a large number of civilians, which creates an incredible dilemma. The right to self-defense is in place, and every country, just like Israel, has a right to defend itself against terrorism, but that does not include displacement. A win for European farmers today. The European Union adopted a resolution allowing farmers to use some land that was previously protected for environmental reasons. The resolution will enter into force tomorrow. It'll apply retroactively from January 1st until the end of the year. The adoption of the measure comes, across, comes as farmers across Europe have been protesting over EU farming policies. Protesters across the continent complain that heavy regulation creates a financial burden and makes their products more expensive than non-EU imports. Russia is allegedly preparing for a direct conflict with NATO within the next decade. The chief of Estonia's Foreign Intelligence Service today said Russia is choosing a path of long-term confrontation with NATO. He pointed to how Russia plans to double the number of forces stationed along its border next to NATO countries. But the Estonian official says a military attack by Russia is highly unlikely in the short term. That's because Russia has, has to keep troops in Ukraine. A growing number of Western officials have warned of a military threat from Russia. Some Western leaders want to place NATO forces along the border with Russia to match the Kremlin's buildup. Estonia's Prime Minister Kaha Kalas is on a Russian wanted list. An official register today showed her name on a Russian register of people wanted in connection with criminal charges. It's the first time the ministry has put a foreign leader on a wanted list. The register didn't specify what charges she's facing. Kalas has been a strong supporter of Ukraine. She spearheaded efforts to increase military assistance to Kyiv and tighten sanctions against Russia. Kalas is being on the wanted list means little in practical terms as contacts between Russia and the West have been frozen during the conflict. And a woman with Canadian and Russian citizenship admitted to being involved in a plot to send drone and missile parts to Russia. She's pleaded guilty on Monday in a U.S. court to conspiracy for money laundering as part of the multi-million dollar scheme. The woman allegedly laundered money on behalf of several Brooklyn front companies to ship U.S. origin electronics to sanctioned entities in Russia. The woman and her husband were arrested late last year with an accomplice. Thousands of semiconductors and other electronics were recovered from the accomplice's home. The woman faces a maximum penalty of up to 20 years in prison. The case is one of many pursued by Justice Department task force created to enforce sanctions, export restrictions and other measures in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Denmark's second largest city is trying a first-of-its-kind deposit scheme to tackle single-use trash like coffee cups. Authorities say the idea could be extended to plates, pizza boxes and more. Entity's Andrew Thomas has more on the initiative. Aarhus is home to about 330,000 people, but Denmark's second largest city has a coffee cup problem. Well, it's about 50% of what we take out of the trash cans is actually takeaway. Uh, the, the stuff you wrap it in, or glasses and all this stuff. Uh, and last year we did a cleaning of the river that runs through the city and we picked up 100,000 glasses. But a new deposit program could help. The cost of each cup is automatically refunded to a person's card when it's returned to one of 25 automated machines across the city. 
When you buy your coffee, you get the possibility to buy a reusable cup, then you pay five crowns, and when you have drinking uh, your coffee, you can leave it in one of the deposit boxes and get your money back. For now, the scheme is undergoing a three-year trial period. If it works, it could be extended to other single-use food and beverage containers. Basically, this can be expanded to all kinds of, of takeaway. This can be the pizza box, this can be the, the, the box you have your curry in, it can be the beer bottles, uh, it can be pretty much anything that will go into a trash can. The program is voluntary for the city's bars and cafes. Over 40 establishments have signed up, including La Cabra, which also has locations in the United States. All of us, we want, uh, we want to have some kind of impact on the, uh, the amount of trash that's uh, lying around, and especially us uh, coffee shops. You know, we're guilty, and we, uh, you know, walking down the, the street, I, I do see like, some of our cups lying around. Once returned, the washable to-go cups are collected and transported to a cleaning facility. I'm very excited that they got it started and that Aarhus uh, started it out. Um, I think it's very important that we um, do circular things, reuse things. About 40,000 reusable to-go cups have been produced so far. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Only the brave have what it takes to withstand back-breaking labor in Siberia. One particular job takes weeks in some of the world's harshest conditions with temperatures plummeting to negative 58 degrees Fahrenheit. Entity's Andrew Thomas has a story. A drone flies low over a snow-covered shipyard in Russia's far east. Workers in sub-zero temperatures maintain these huge vessels during the bitter Siberian winter. They chip away at the ice encasing the ships, looking for areas in need of repair. The colder the weather, the better it freezes. However, during the cold weather, it's lower than negative 40 degrees today, the gasoline chainsaw sometimes acts up. It sometimes freezes during work, so you have to let it get warm. Locals in Yakutia say it's one of the hardest jobs in the world, but the workers say it's all a matter of perspective. You dress the right way and that's it. When you come and get undressed, it's like a sauna. Steam rises from you. How does it feel? I don't know. One needs to try to understand, needs to love the cold and working in it. The work requires strength, stamina and extreme precision. It's hard work. It has its difficulties. Many people think it's monotonous. You just saw and break ice. But you have to think about what you're doing and know how to do it. One wrong move and you've let the water in. You've sunk all your work and will have to start anew. The better the ice freezes, the smoother the job. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. Victims of the brutal October 7th Hamas terror attack are driving a new effort to have UNRWA designated as a terror organization. Hear their reasoning. Mass flight cancellations and power outages. A windstorm is bringing heavy snow and other extreme weather conditions to the Northeast. The Senate passes an aid package for Ukraine and Israel, but some Republican senators argue there's a trap door for a future president built into the bill. For a second time in a week, House Republicans vote to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. Will the outcome be different this time? 
New details in the ongoing Biden impeachment inquiry. A former business associate of Hunter Biden testifying that Joe Biden met with the chairman of a Chinese energy firm that his son did business with after leaving the Obama administration. Flower farmers in Colombia are working nonstop ahead of Valentine's Day. It's one of their most important holidays of the year. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, New York City and other parts of the Northeast are bracing for a surge of snow today. A strong, fast-moving nor'easter is knocking out power and disrupting travel in the region. More than six inches of snow was reported across the Northeast earlier today. New York City could see its biggest snowfall in more than two years. Roughly 46 million people are under winter alerts. New York City public schools canceled in-person classes and switched to remote learning. Authorities are urging residents to work from home and avoid non-essential travel. According to PowerOutage.us, more than 40,000 properties in the Northeast were without power this morning. More power outages are possible in the region. According to FlightAware, over a thousand flights are canceled nationwide today. Most are in the New York and Boston area. And amid the winter storm, a congressional district on Long Island is holding a special election today. The seat has been vacant since Congress expelled former Representative George Santo. New York's third congressional district covers parts of Long Island close to New York City. The race could have major implications for several reasons. On the Democratic side is Tom Suozzi, who represented the district until 2022. On the Republican side, there is Mazi Pillip, a Nassau County legislator. Analysts predict a close race. The results could also be a bellwether for the battle for the House this November. And given Republicans' razor-thin majority, losing the race could give them even less leverage in the House. There are also concerns that the winter storm could dampen voter turnout. Both candidates are urging voters to go to the polls and not to allow the storm to get in the way. Polls close at 9 p.m. tonight. The head of the United Nations agency, UNRWA, said today that calls to dismantle the agency were short-sighted. Philippe Lazzarini says terminating the agency's mandate weakened the world's ability to respond to the humanitarian crisis in Gaza. Concerning the network of tunnels that allegedly run partly under the agency in Gaza, the UNRWA said, head says a, vo a vote of inquiry is needed. Major donors have suspended funding after allegations that 12 of UNRWA's employees were suspected of involvement in the October 7th terror attacks. Even prior to the allegations, Israeli authorities had repeatedly called for the agency to be dismantled, arguing it fosters anti-Israeli sentiment among its staff. And staying on the topic of UNRWA, there is now a movement to have the agency designated a terrorist organization. An Israeli law center is leading the effort. The Law Center represents dozens of victims of the brutal October 7th attacks by Hamas. The initiative of the Law Center is targeted toward the Defense Ministry. The organization argues that there is a solid legal basis for such a designation. The president of the Law Center says the agency, quote, has become a central headquarters of a terrorist organization, some of whose employees murdered innocent Jews with their own hands. President Biden met with the King of Jordan at the White House yesterday. 
The two heads of state discussed a potential hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, humanitarian aid for civilians, and solutions for peace in the region. President Biden met with longtime U.S. ally Jordan's King Abdullah II on Monday for talks on the Israel-Hamas war. The United States is working on a hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which would bring an immediate and sustained period of calm to Gaza for at least six weeks. The pause in fighting would allow humanitarian aid and supplies to flow into the Strip. Biden said the U.S. would do everything possible to make an agreement happen adding that key elements of the deal are on the table, but there are gaps that remain. This comes after Israeli airstrikes on the city of Rafah in southern Gaza. Israel rescued two hostages during the operation. Rafah currently holds close to one and a half million Palestinians. Biden stressed the major military operation should not proceed without a credible plan to ensure the safety of the people sheltering there. And now they're packed into Rafah, exposed and vulnerable. They need to be protected. Abdullah, the first Arab leader to visit the White House since Hamas's October 7th terrorist attack on Israel, called for a complete ceasefire. We must together, along with Arab partners and the international community, step up efforts to reach a ceasefire in Gaza and immediately start working to create a political horizon that leads to a just and comprehensive peace. Senior officials from the U.S., Egypt, Israel and Qatar will reportedly resume negotiations Tuesday in Cairo on a hostage deal and humanitarian pause, anonymous sources told Reuters. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller didn't confirm talks would take place, but said Israel's military action in Rafah should in no way impact the negotiations. And here to discuss with us is Gerard Felitti, Senior Counsel at the Lawfare, Lawfare Project. Gerard, welcome. Great to have you back. To begin with... Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome. And, and to begin with, please explain for us the geopolitical dynamics of Jordan and their stance on the Israel-Hamas war. Well, Jordan is a longtime ally of, the, ally of the United States, and it has good relations with Israel. The issue with Jordan is that it has a substantial Palestinian population. Jordan was a product of the split of the Palestine Mandate, where Jordan had the Hashemites uh, got Jordan as a territory, and then Israel was formed from the rest of that territory. So the link between Israel and Jordan goes back in history at least 80 years, uh, and the sizable Palestinian population within Jordan makes it a difficult position for the king to be in, when on the one hand he is supporting supportive of Israel and the United States, but on the other, he has to con domestic considerations uh, with his population. So Jordan is pushing for a ceasefire, as we just heard. How significant is pressure from neighboring countries uh, in that region, and especially from U.S. allies in all of this? Yep. The pressure is always significant, and all of these countries that are pushing for a ceasefire uh, have have self-interest in a way. They all have a Palestinian population. Most of these countries, with the exception of Jordan, have refused to take in more Palestinian civilians. So it is in their interests to prevent a greater humanitarian issue of having more displaced persons. The, the other issue with these countries is they want to see stability and peace in the area. They want to see economic prosperity. And in large part, a lot of these countries want to resume normal relations with Israel. Israel, and that can't happen while there is an active war. So there is an interest not just in the humanitarian issue, but in having peace and stability in the region. And they're really pushing for a ceasefire and a long-term solution. And UNRWA has come into hot water recently for allegations surrounding its possible involvement in the October 7th attacks and other links to, uh, to Hamas. 
Yet Jordan wants that agency to continue receiving funding from the U.S. and they're pushing for that in their talks with Biden. Uh, how impactful could all of this be, uh, this stance from Jordan, and what message could it send um, if the U.S. continues this funding to, of UNRWA? Well, it, it's an important stance, but ultimately there are a lot of other considerations for the U.S. government, including a push by some of our elected uh, government officials to designate UNRWA as a terrorist organization. I think we've all seen how flawed that institution is in, in that it was in, in essentially hosting. Uh, a lot of its employees were also doing double duty as Hamas terrorists and, and operatives for other terrorist organizations. But the larger problem is UNRWA has not really delivered anything of substantial value to the Palestinian people in Gaza. This has been a criticism for years and there's been a lot of pressure to either reform it or move on to a different way of administering aid. So while the, Jordan, the Jordanian government has an interest in seeing humanitarian improvements in Gaza, it may not be that UNRWA is the best agency to do so. The problem is right now there's no one else that's stepping in to provide humanitarian aid or suggest a better way forward. Now Biden is on shaky ground politically considering the recent report by Robert Hur calling him essentially a forgetful old man. How important is it for Biden to negotiate some kind of deal here regarding the Gaza war? And what's he likely to attempt? What do you think would be the effect of it? President Biden has been seeing political weakness in some swing states, especially Michigan, where Arab voters, Arab American voters are disenchanted that he has been so vocally supportive of Israel. For Biden now, it's walking a fine line between continuing to support Israel, our ally, our friend, the democracy in the region that was subjected to horrific terrorist attacks uh, and placating some of his more liberal supporters. Ultimately, President Biden will continue to do what he's doing, which is push for a resolution, push for a long-term humanitarian pause ask that Israel respect the rights of, of the Palestinians living in Gaza, as it has been doing, and, and continue providing support for Israel while balancing that with a call for a two-state solution and long-term stability. And just lastly, considering Hamas's stated intention to repeat the atrocities of October 7th until Israel is obliterated, what stance should the U.S. take amid this fractured political setting and also the mounting casualties in Gaza? Hamas is a designated foreign terrorist organization for a reason. It is, it is violent. It commits horrific acts against civilians around the world, not just in Israel. And Hamas is committed to the destruction of Israel. It's committed to bringing violence to the region. And the U.S. quite rightly has it designated and is helping Israel fight it. Long term, there can't really be peace so long as terrorist organizations control civilian populations anywhere. So the United States should have as its stated objective helping Israel defeat this terrorist organizations. That will also allow humanitarian aid to flow into the region. Ultimately, President Biden should be and, and may be well supportive of Israel to achieve its goal of completely defeating Hamas and not allowing it to rearm and maintain power in Gaza. All right. Thank you so much, Gerard Felitti, senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. Really appreciate it. The Senate early Tuesday passed an over $95 billion aid package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan. But some Republican senators are sounding the alarm. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the bill and their concerns. Senate leader Chuck Schumer says it's perhaps decades since the Senate passed a bill that so greatly impacts national security and the security of Western democracy. Today we witnessed one of the most historic and consequential bills to have ever passed the Senate. 
The vote came after a small group of Republicans opposed to the $60 billion for Ukraine held the Senate floor through the night. Senator Josh Hawley reacted. My goodness, we have enough money to make hundreds of millions of dollars of our taxpayer funds available to the private sector in Ukraine. Hawley says such money will literally fund their businesses and banks and the pensions of Ukrainian government officials. The lawmaker says the U.S. Senate has left middle America out in the cold. Meanwhile, these same people turn to the citizens of Missouri and say, you're not worth a dime. They say, you can't have a penny. Senator J.D. Vance says he sent a memo to all GOP colleagues saying there's an impeachment time bomb for a potential Donald Trump presidency buried in the bill's text. The Ohio senator mentions Trump's 2019 impeachment report that criticizes Trump for freezing military assistance to Ukraine against national security interests. Here's Vance on Real America's Voice. So what happens if Donald Trump decides to force Ukraine to go to the negotiating table? What if he releases some of the money, but not all of the money? What if he decides to do what a president has to do, which is conduct diplomacy? Senator Rand Paul said he stands behind Vance's memo on Monday. He told Fox Digital, quote, they're locking in foreign aid that will even tie the hands of the next president. More than a dozen Republicans voted with almost all Democrats to pass the package 70 to 29. Those in support argued that abandoning Ukraine could embolden Russian President Vladimir Putin and threaten national security across the globe. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Trump asked the Supreme Court to pause a lower court's ruling that rejected his bid for presidential immunity. Trump also wants a full bench of judges to reconsider the D.C. appeals court decision instead of the three-judge panel that made the ruling. And in Trump's Georgia election case, the district attorney could face disqualification. A judge said the D.A. might have to testify over allegations of misconduct. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Trump's legal battles. Former President Trump asked the Supreme Court Monday to temporarily block a unanimous decision from the D.C. Circuit, denying his claims to presidential immunity in his federal January 6th case. The case would be sent back to trial court to proceed if Trump's request is rejected. If granted, the case would be further delayed. It generally takes the votes of five justices to grant a stay. Prosecutors have argued Trump was acting as a candidate, not a president, for his alleged role on January 6th. Trump wants the case dismissed based on presidential immunity. In Georgia, the judge and district attorney Fonnie Willis's election case against Trump said she could be disqualified. I think it's clear that disqualification can occur if evidence is produced demonstrating an actual conflict or the appearance of one. Willis and special counsel Nathan Wade tried to have their subpoenas quashed and the hearing canceled. The judge rejected their arguments. He says Thursday's hearing will focus on if a relationship existed, if it was romantic in nature, when it formed, and whether it continues. The judge says it remains to be proven that Willis financially benefited from the case, but that Thursday's hearing must occur to establish the record on allegations of misconduct, and that Willis may be required to testify due to a good faith basis for relevance from the defense. The relevant information that Mr. Bradley has to this inquiry is that this relationship started prior to Mr. Wade being appointed as a special prosecutor in this case. Trump and his co-defendants are also seeking to get the entire case dismissed. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. And Trump looking to shape, shake up the Republican National Committee. He's backing North Carolina Republican Party Chairman Michael Watley 
to succeed Ronna McDaniel as RNC chair, and he endorsed his own daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, as co-chair. McDaniel offered to step down after the South Carolina primary after she met with Trump at his Mar-a-Lago residence earlier in the month. Trump is also tapping his senior presidential campaign advisor to manage the RNC's day-to-day -day operations. Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley criticized Trump's endorsements, saying he's rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. She says under Trump and the current RNC leadership, Republicans lost elections in 2018, 2020, and 2022. And in related news, more endorsements for Trump allies. The Senate Republicans' campaign arm is endorsing candidate Carrie Lake in Arizona. A statement today from the National Republican Senatorial Committee reads, Carrie Lake is one of the most talented candidates in the country. Carrie is building out an effective campaign operation that has what it takes to flip Arizona's Senate seat in November. Arizona will be a crucial battleground for the Senate race this November. Republicans are trying to flip the seat from independent Senator Kirsten Sinema and gain control of the chamber. The latest endorsement from the GOP committee is a sign that Lake has been able to court establishment Republicans. And staying in election news, in other crucial Senate race this November, GOP Senator Ted Cruz is announcing his endorsement. Cruz announced today that he's backing Senate candidate Bernie Moreno in Ohio. Cruz said in his statement, quote, we need to rally behind candidates who will help flip the Senate back to a Republican majority. He said Moreno has what it takes to win this race and join what Cruz called the fight against Joe Biden and his radical agenda. Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown currently holds the Senate seat in Ohio. It's among the five Senate seats most likely to flip in November. Moreno is running in a highly contested Republican primary. He will face Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose and State Senator Matt Dolan on March 19th. Moreno has also received former President Trump's endorsement. And up next, one Republican lawmaker says medical records allocated for illegal immigrants could be hurting America's veterans. Senator Tommy, Tommy Tuberville says the border influx is creating longer wait times at veteran facilities. A t-shirt on the topic of gender lands a Massachusetts 7th grader in hot water. NTD spoke with his attorney, who says the teen's free speech rights were violated. More in just a moment, here on NTD News Today. House Republicans will have another chance to vote on Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas's impeachment today after their motion was defeated last week. Republicans vowed to try again once House Majority Leader Steve Scalise returned to work. Scalise was absent from the first vote because he was receiving cancer treatment. GOP lawmakers want to remove Mayorkas for his handling of the border, saying he failed to enforce immigration law. Democrats have denounced the impeachment, calling it political posturing. And Senator Tommy Tuberville complaining that medical resources allocated for illegal immigrants could be hurting American veterans. The Republican lawmaker told Fox News that the influx at the border is creating potentially longer wait times at Veterans Affairs facilities. The VA doesn't pay for illegal immigrants' health care, but it is involved in handling the bills, sending reimbursements to Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and performing other bureaucratic tasks. This partnership was in place before the Biden administration. But the agency is reportedly having trouble handling all the extra paperwork. That's due to the sheer number of people entering the country. 
Fox News reports that some veterans now receive bills they're not supposed to receive, while community care providers have to wait longer for their reimbursements. To stop this, Senator Tuberville recently introduced a bill called the No VA Resources for Illegal Aliens Act. And in other border news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp is poised to send more resources to help Texas tackle illegal crossings. Georgia's Republican-led legislature recently passed resolutions condemning President Biden's border policy. State lawmakers say they back any effort to help protect the southern border. Kemp could choose to send more National Guard troops to the U.S.-Mexico border in Texas. The governor deployed troops there in 2019, and almost 30 Guard members currently remain stationed in Texas. Kemp is expected to give more details this afternoon during a scheduled announcement. Georgia is at least the third Republican-led state where lawmakers have introduced resolutions to support Texas Governor Greg Abbott after Oklahoma and Tennessee. Mexican authorities busted a massive drug lab in Sonora, a state which borders the United States. It's the largest drug lab dismantled during the current administration. The facility had over 70 laboratory reactors, five times more than the previously biggest lab. According to the governor of Sonora, authorities found more than 1 billion doses of drugs, as well as 45 tons of chemical substances used to make drugs. The findings are valued at an estimated $700 million. And in California, a Mexican national was arrested for smuggling over 150 pounds of meth in duffel bags. Border Patrol agents pulled over the driver yesterday after spotting the suspicious vehicle. The driver refused the search, but a canine unit detected drugs inside. Agents found multiple packages of meth in the bags with an estimated street value of over $270,000. And security cameras on Monday captured the moment a series of earthquakes struck a California home near the Mexico border. Footage shared by residents, a resident in El Centro shows multiple locations on the property shaking. Tremors caused kitchen cabinet doors to open and items to call up, fall off a counter, as you can see. Since midnight, over two dozen earthquakes have been reported in the area. The U.S. Geological Survey says the largest quake registered a magnitude of 4.8. No injuries were reported within El Centro. The city of El Centro confirmed damage to an apartment complex where a waterline break occurred. Across the border in Mexicali, classes were suspended as a precaution. The State Council of Civil Protection is assessing the schools. Check your refrigerators. Some salad kits are being recalled because they could be contaminated with listeria. Some Dole-branded and private-label salad kits were processed on the same line as a cheese that was recently recalled for possible traces of listeria. The recalled products include Dole, President's Choice, and Marketside brand salad kits. They were distributed in 25 states and 5 Canadian provinces. Anyone with the products are urged to discard them immediately. Dole says so far there have been no reported illnesses connected to the products. A major recall involving a popular refrigerator brand. Electrolux is recalling more than 380,000 of its Frigidaire side-by-side -side refrigerators with slim ice buckets. The ice buckets components can break, causing plastic pieces to enter the buckets, which can pose a potential choking or laceration hazard. That's according to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, or CPSC. Electrolux says they've had at least 343 such incidents reported. Most of the recalled fridges were sold in the U.S., with nearly 6,000 sold in Canada. More information is available at CPSC's website. 
Doctors, nurses, and parents are scrambling now that one of the most commonly prescribed childhood asthma medications is no longer being manufactured in the U.S. Pharmaceutical company GSK took Flovent off the shelves January 1st and replaced it with an identical generic version. Ahead of the switch, the company said this would help provide patients with potentially lower costs, but that hasn't necessarily been the case. Some insurance companies don't cover the generic version, while alternatives might not work for certain children or they can be hard to find. Flovins and its generic version reduce inflammation in the airways of children that are at risk of having a flare-up or asthma attack. And a federal judge temporarily blocks an Ohio law seeking to regulate kids' access to social media. The judge says the law is likely unconstitutional. An emergency order was issued last month stopping the law from going into effect. The legislation would have required social media platforms to get parental consent before kids under 16 could create accounts. On Monday, the judge said the law is breathtakingly blunt in trying to achieve its goals. He said it's an untargeted approach, as parents must only give one-time approval for creating an account. He said under the law, parents and platforms are not required to protect against any of the specific dangers social media might pose. The move is the latest blow to states vowing to crack down on social media in the face of mounting claims it's bad for mental health. It highlights the many legal hurdles facing calls to ban social media for kids. And a Massachusetts seventh grader weighs in on a divisive topic concerning human sexuality. He wore a t-shirt to school saying there are only two genders. The school then asked him to remove the shirt. NTD's Daniel Monahan spoke with Alliance Defending Freedom about the lawsuit that followed. Liam Morrison is a student at Nichols Middle School in Middleborough, Massachusetts. He says he wore the t-shirt stating there are only two genders to school in March of last year to peacefully share his belief that a person's gender is directly tied to sex. He says the school silenced his free speech when they pulled him out of class and asked him to remove his t-shirt. I never thought that the shirt I wore to school one spring morning would lead to a federal lawsuit, but the reaction from the adults running my school didn't leave me with much choice. Liam says expressing his point of view was only fair, as he says his school was regularly encouraging and expressing their point of view. My school's annual Pride Month celebration is a pretty clear example. My school spends all of June expressing its view on LGBTQ issues, and school officials encourage us to wear our Pride gear to celebrate Pride Month. Liam politely declined to remove the shirt and had to leave school and missed the rest of his classes that day. Liam came back another day with a t-shirt stating, there are censored genders. The honor roll student was sent straight to the principal's office. Liam later filed a lawsuit with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom and the Massachusetts Family Institute, Alliance Defending Freedom attorney Tyson Langhofer. The school was regularly engaging in their own speech on the same topic, and they were encouraging their students to express support for that position. But they weren't allowing people like Liam to express a dissenting view. And that's not allowed. The government cannot censor one viewpoint and allow the other viewpoint to go uncensored. Langhofer discusses how the school could have better handled the matter. 
is if there were complaints, they could say, hey, let's have a discussion about this. What's your view? Do you disagree with Liam? If so, what's your opinion? How do we have civil discourse on this? Right? We live in a pluralistic society. We, we live in a society where people hold differing opinions on really important topics. And what the school should have done is educate the children on what the First Amendment really means. It doesn't mean that you get to censor people who have different opinions just because your, their opinion may be hurtful to you. The attorney brings up the Supreme Court case West Virginia versus Barnett from 1943, which ruled that the First Amendment protects students from being forced to salute the flag or say the Pledge of Allegiance in public school. And that may be hurtful to you if your dad's serving the military trying to defend uh, the world against Nazis, but we can't force people to do things against their wishes. The case is currently in the appeal stage at the First Circuit Court of Appeals in Boston. Langhofer hopes the court will rule in favor of Liam and all students to be able to express their opinions civilly on important topics. NTD reached out to Nichols Middle School for comment. We are still waiting to hear back from them. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Florida is introducing two bills to make it easier to sue media outlets and creators of so-called deepfake impersonations using artificial intelligence. But the measures are now drawing criticism. The bills would make it easier for public figures to file defamation lawsuits. For example, they can sue journalists who rely on anonymous sources for information that turns out to be false. Critics say this will make it harder for journalists to publish reports on subjects like corruption and crime using anonymous sources. That's over concerns that the source's identity might be revealed in legal action. The new legislation would also establish that more people harmed by AI creations could sue for defamation. Coming up, new details in the ongoing Biden impeachment inquiry. A former business associate of Hunter Biden testifying that Joe Biden met with the chairman of a Chinese energy firm that his son did business with after leaving the Obama administration. Argentine soccer star Lionel Messi entangled in a round of cancellations from China. It all stems from his no-show at a friendly match in Hong Kong. We'll have the details soon when we return. Turning now to the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. A former business partner of Hunter Biden testified that he, Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and the head of Chinese energy firm CEFC had lunch in Washington, D.C. sometime in 2017. That was after Biden left the Obama administration. Rob Walker, a former associate of Hunter's, testified before the House Oversight and Judiciary Committees earlier this month. The information comes from a transcript of his closed-door interview reviewed by Fox News Digital. Walker recalls the chairman of CEFC was present at the launch, as well as other business partners from the Chinese firm, and that the former vice president left after addressing the group. Walker insisted that Joe Biden was not involved in any of his son's business ventures. Today, another former associate of Hunter Biden is testifying. Tony Bobulinski is expected to address an alleged business venture between him, Hunter Biden, the president's brother, Jim Biden, and CEFC. The Chinese conglomerate has deep ties to the Chinese Communist Party. Bobulinski has strongly suggested that the firm engaged Hunter to gain access to then-Vice President Joe Biden. In his opening statement today, Bobulinski reportedly said the Biden family business was Joe Biden, period. Bobulinski claims he met with Joe Biden in 2017 after Biden left office. 
In a December statement to Fox News, Bobulinski wrote, quote, Why is Joe Biden blatantly lying to the American people and the world by claiming that he did not meet with me face to face? He goes on to say he should call his son Hunter Biden and brother Jim as they can remind him of the facts. The American people deserve the truth. And switching gears now to sports. Two friendly soccer matches featuring Argentine star Lionel Messi have been canceled in China. This after a no-show during a game in Hong Kong prompted outrage from authorities. Let's dive in. Two major Chinese cities are turning away from hosting Lionel Messi. By the end of last week, sporting authorities in Beijing and Hangzhou have canceled two upcoming soccer matches featuring Messi and his team. The Beijing Football Association said it will not host any match with Messi participating, be it the Argentina national team or Inter Miami. This round of cancellation came after a friendly match in Hong Kong, in which the Argentine soccer star set out his pitch due to a reported injury. But public uproar began to intensify days later, when Messi hit the field during another game in Japan, seemingly with no injuries in sight. China's stay-back tabloid, the Global Times, asserted Messi's no-show as politically motivated, added that the impact has, quote, far extended the realm of sport. Another point of controversy, this footage shows Messi walk past Hong Kong's chief executive, John Lee, without shaking his hand. Worth noting, Lee is well known for his pro-China stance. He was sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury Department in 2020 over his role in the clampdown of pro-democracy activists in Hong Kong. Now for a shift in gears, we have some short headlines from Germany and other European countries. First, a look at Israel's plan for a military offensive in Rafah, a city in the Gaza Strip. Germany's foreign minister today said she's very concerned about Israel's announcement. She admits there's a large presence of Hamas terrorists in Rafah, but she says there's also a large number of civilians, which creates an incredible dilemma. Das Recht auf Selbstverteidigung. The right to self-defense is in place. And every country, just like Israel, has a right to defend itself against terrorism, but that does not include displacement. Russia is allegedly preparing for a direct conflict with NATO within the next decade. The chief of Estonia's Foreign Intelligence Service today said Russia is choosing a path of long-term confrontation with NATO. He pointed to how Russia plans to double the number of forces stationed along its border next to NATO countries. But the Estonian official says a military attack by Russia is highly unlikely in the short term. That's because Russia has to keep troops in Ukraine. A growing number of Western officials have warned of a military threat from Russia. Some Western leaders want to place NATO forces along the border with Russia to match the Kremlin's buildup. Estonia's Prime Minister Kaha Kalas is on a Russian wanted list. An official register today showed her name on a Russian register of people wanted in connection with criminal charges. It's the first time the ministry has put a foreign leader on a wanted list. The register didn't specify what charges she's facing. Kalas has been a strong supporter of Ukraine. She spearheaded efforts to increase military assistance to Kyiv and tighten sanctions against Russia. Kallas was uh, being on the wanted list means little in practical terms, as contacts between Russia and the West have been frozen during the conflict. And a woman with Canadian and Russian citizenship admitted to being involved in a plot to send drone and missile parts to Russia. She pleaded guilty on Monday in a U.S. court to conspiracy for money laundering as part of the multi-million dollar scheme. 
The woman allegedly laundered money on behalf of several Brooklyn front companies to ship U.S. origin electronics to sanctioned entities in Russia. The woman and her husband were arrested late last year along with an accomplice. Thousands of semiconductors and other electronics were recovered from the accomplice's home. The woman faces a maximum penalty of up to 20 years in prison. The case is one of many pursued by a Justice Department task force created to enforce sanctions, export restrictions, and other measures in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Coming up, the Montessori method is known as a popular approach to child education. Now an Australian program is applying this to the elderly. What are its benefits? Thousands in Japan remain displaced after a deadly earthquake hit on New Year's Day. One survivor has been looking for a pet-friendly shelter after sleeping in his car for more than one month. And florists in England prepare for the annual Valentine's Day rush, but some fear that Brexit trade barriers will mean higher costs. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. The benefits of the Montessori education model have long been discussed for children. Now, a project in Australia is employing the method as part of elder care. NTD's Andrew Thomas has the details. The program called Living Well Together is helping seniors with dementia stay active and engaged. Researchers say the Montessori education method allows assisted living residents to explore their interests hands-on. You don't want to feel as if you've been shoved in the corner. This is a world and it's beautiful. BAPT Care is a residential and community care provider operating across Australia's southeast. CEO Geraldine Lannan says they always want the focus centered on the resident instead of routine. We're already seeing significant impact and a reduction on an incidence to our residents. The model is based on the Montessori School of Thought. The method has been tried and tested for years on younger people. There is a narrative that Australians have that you come to residential aged care to die. We want to change that. In a senior care setting, the idea is to focus on the personal interests, preferences and independence of residents. We are very happy that we are making residents' life meaningful here. They're not just sitting there, they're doing a lot of activities. It's really easy to demonise residential aged care and to kind of say it's an awful place, but I think we as a society have the collective right to think what could it look like. The project there has been a success. Now it's expanding to 15 other senior care facilities. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And in Japan, thousands are struggling to rebuild their homes after that 7.6 magnitude quake hit the West Coast on New Year's Day. One of the displaced is searching for a shelter for both herself and her two kittens after sleeping in a car for more than a month. Here's that story. It's been about a month since Yoshimi Tomita began to live in her car with her two cats. That's when a devastating magnitude 7.6 earthquake struck Japan's Noto Peninsula, killing more than 200 people and displacing tens of thousands more. Tomita was trapped under a roof for 10 hours. When she was rescued, she emerged with her cats Rion and Reito to find herself among the displaced and for local evacuation centers to turn them away. They told me that if they allowed cats, people would say, well, what about my chameleon? And they'd never hear the end of it. So that's when I knew they wouldn't let me bring my pets in. With no home and no shelter, Tomita lived in her car with her cats. After a month of searching, the trio finally found a center that would accept them. They moved in on its opening day and Tomita could finally sleep lying down. 
Without the new center, she wonders if she would have, quote, buckled under the mental strain. Akumi Tsujimoto is an animal welfare manager from the NGO that co-runs the new evacuation center and says the situation is not unique. Our surveys have shown that there are quite a large number of people living in their cars, leaving their pets in their damaged homes, and then returning to care for them, or even staying together in their damaged homes with their pets. Tomida is now one of around 13,000 residents living in evacuation centers, according to Ishikawa Prefecture's government. They say a program to build about 13,000 temporary homes over the next few months is underway. Eventually, Tomita hopes to move for the freedom of her cats, who must remain caged or on a leash at the center. But without a disaster victim certificate that would help her leave Ishikawa, and no word on whether temporary housing will become available to her, Tomita has no option but to remain at the center for now. Florists in Manchester, England are preparing for the annual Valentine's Day rush, but some fear that Brexit trade barriers will mean higher costs and hindered business. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the latest. Giraffe Flowers expects to sell some 7,000 roses in time for Valentine's Day. Today, the shop's bouquet of red roses goes for 40 pounds, or about $50. But by next year, the florist expects that'll cost $60, due to post-Brexit customs charges on European goods. So at the end of the day, the price of the flowers will be higher in the actual shop, and the customs will be paying more. Since January 31st, importers of some animal and plant products have been required to present export health certificates to British authorities. Items include meat, eggs, cheese, and certain cut flowers. Giraffe head florist Anna Malika says she expects flower prices to rise by up to 20%. Probably at the beginning, when the process is going to start, the, I don't think the borders are ready for that, so it's going to be even longer, so maybe two days of a delay because of that. And, uh, and it will affect the quality of the flowers because they have to be on actual border for a longer period of time. And more red tape is coming. Physical checks will start on April 30th. Safety and security certificates will be required from October 31st. The British government says it's working to ensure the introduction of checks goes smoothly. Still, Malika is bracing for a slower Valentine's Day next year. I think the customers will just buy less. And we can already see a changes in uh, the amount of flowers they buy with all the cost savings going up. People still come and they buy flowers, they buy smaller bunches, smaller bouquets. Britain has already postponed full implementation of its post-Brexit border controls five times since leaving the European Union in 2021 due to worries about port disruption and the cost of living crisis. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And flower farmers in Colombia are working nonstop in the run-up to Valentine's Day. They hope to meet export demands from the United States for one of the industry's biggest and most important days of the year. The Plaza Letta Flower Company northwest of Bogota is humming. The company's employees hard at work picking and packing lilies, carnations and hydrangeas ahead of Valentine's Day. More and more people are turning to flowers as the perfect gift this Valentine's Day. Our industry, as well as our workers, of course, are doing our best to cater in the best way for this holiday. Yes, it's a nice process. In addition to the fact that we see many varieties and many colors, it's really nice working with the flowers because you see them grow and you watch the whole process. And to know that they travel so far is incredible. It's one of the biggest holidays for Colombian farmers. 
To meet the demand, the companies start flower production six months before the big date. Last year, for the Valentine's Day holiday, Colombia ex exported nearly 60,000 tons of cut flowers between January and February. That is a lot of flowers, and that's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more stories tomorrow.